Welcome, I'm Dr. Ali Jumus, President-Elect of ISCOS and your guest host today for this episode. We are recording this episode with just a few weeks to go until the 62nd ISCOS scientific meeting taking place in Edinburgh. To help us welcome you all to Edinburgh, we have truly inspiring guests. Claire Lomas, MBE, will share her story and that is what we are going to do today. Welcome to the show, Claire. It's wonderful to have you here. Privileged to be with you. Thank you. It is an amazing story, and I hope you will bear with me. I don't like the sort of formality, just reading and you answering, but just have an exchange of views between a clinician who spent a lifetime looking after people like you and nobody more important than the person who is in the wheelchair. I actually would like to point out, we always concentrate on Claire Lomas after her injury. I'd like us to remember also Claire Lomas before her injury, because there is no doubt that all you have achieved to date is influenced by your personality and who you were before the injury. So can you tell us a little bit about Claire before the accident? So I had qualified as a chiropractor and I'd had four years at university to do that and set up a clinic that I treated my patients from just part-time at home. So that's what I was doing as my career before my accident. But my passion were the horses. And right from the age of two or three, I was on ponies and eventually got into the sport of eventing. And it was just a few months before my accident that I reached the highest level in the sport. And it was my childhood dream to get to that level. So... It was a really exciting time for me and all my goals and ambitions were coming true and set high for the future. Um, and yeah, what was to come next totally stopped everything, really. All those things I'd worked years for were just at a grinding halt. What sort of a family support and friends that you had around those times, which I'm sure they rallied to your help? Yeah, I've got an amazing family. Uh, we're a farming family. And my mum and dad were my rocks throughout my accident and huge life change. And my friends are brilliant too. I had a lot of sporting events from the eventing days. And they were really by my side through the journey. And, you know, it shows who your true friends are when something like spinal cord injury happens to you. Obviously, you needed a lot of support in the early days. Can you tell us how did you cope? What's the challenges that you felt? You're lying there, you have lost the use of your half your body, your life is upside down. How did you cope? A lot of thoughts go through your head at that time, and um, it's a real roller coaster. There were times where I didn't know if I would cope. How on earth was I going to deal with my life? Now I was in a wheelchair, never sat still for a second before my accident. And I, I was 27 at the time. You know, it's so easy to take everything for granted, not just the sport I did and the job I was, you know, doing, but also simple things like soaking in the bath. You'd feel the water on you at the end of the day and dancing the night away with your friends on a good night out. All those kind of things were suddenly lost. So you know, there's a lot of thoughts going through my head sometimes I wished I hadn't even survived the accident I couldn't see a future I was scared it's the unknown and uncertainty but I think I'm quite an open person and I went through that process of 
grieving for everything I'd lost. A lot of tears, leaning on people that were close to me. But also as many moments, even in the early days where I'd still have laughs, jokes, and almost like you'd escape from your injury because you'd be with the people you loved and, and having fun. And then it hit you again that actually you're stuck like this and, and what on earth is the future going to have in store? So it's a real mixture, a real roller coaster. Do you agree with me that I'm sure the family support, the friends support, and you've spoken of your competitive nature and availability to remain positive. How do you think all these factors influence your ability to cope with and adjust to your injury? I think family support and everyone around you is a huge thing. Also, like you said, your own personality. I came from a sport that is incredibly tough. Any sport at a high level is demanding. Horses, I think even more so because it's not just things with yourself that can go wrong, but you've got an animal and it's full of disappointments and setbacks along the way to get to the to the highest level. So it builds up a little bit of resilience um, and that bounce back kind of attitude. That was a big part of me coping with it. And along with that, I had an amazing extended family in the horse world that, that got behind me and helped me uh, get some of the equipment I've got and, and things like that. But having them there was really comforting at a, what was a very dark time. So if you look back now and you stated that the medical rehab that you had and the sporting activities, both factors has sped up your recovery. So one just need to look at your records uh, of achievement along with the birth of your daughters and so on and so forth. Tell us what sort of was your approach and how this shaped your life as a paraplegic? Yeah, so I had 10 days in intensive care before I was moved to the spinal unit because um, my injuries were that I had T4 complete spinal cord injury, but I also fractured my neck, fractured ribs, punctured lung, and ended up getting pneumonia. So I was really poorly to start with. And then I was transferred to Sheffield spinal unit. And I was always really determined to give it everything I'd got. I knew that my injury was severe. I knew that I might not make any recovery. But I felt that if I did the rehab, it gave me the best chance. But if it didn't, mate, if I didn't get any neurological gains, then it would help keep me fit and healthy and prevent things like pressure sores and circulation problems. So that was the kind of mindset I had. I wanted to keep moving. But I didn't get much rehab at Sheffield. I got three sessions a week for 45 minutes. Is that why you discharge yourself exactly. after? Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> I, I left pretty quick. I was told five or six months in there, and I, I left after eight weeks because most of the time was just sat by my bed and I was a 27 year old sports person that was fine for some people that's what they wanted to do but for me I wanted to be doing more and it wasn't possible in the spinal unit and, and alongside not just the amount I get it was it was the attitude I felt was quite negative and they didn't want me to have any hope. I'm going to ask you to dwell on this point because it is something which is very important that the listeners to all the people who work with tremendous and highly competitive people like you. Tell me more about how you rate the rehabilitation process. Yeah, I felt, I don't know if it's changed, bearing in mind my accident was 16 years ago now, but I felt that everyone was treated the same. So whether that was this 70-something-year-old lady that broken a neck next to me in my ward, who was lovely, but whether it was her or, or myself, or whoever, everyone kind of got the same. And everyone is an individual and what's right for someone isn't right for someone else. 
any kind of hope was false hope and any positivity was denial. And I was a chiropractor, that was my background. I knew that my injury was a severe spinal cord injury, but I'm not afraid of having hope. I hoped, I hoped that I would get to the top level in my sport, but no one ever said, don't dream for that because it might not happen. And I just felt that it was the right thing for me to do, given as well that I couldn't go back to my career or anything else. And it actually gave me a reason to get up in the morning in those early days to get on and do rehab and try. And also it's kept me healthy throughout. I still do stuff now that's right for me. So that's why, you know, I felt that I needed to leave. It wasn't just the lack of rehab. It was it was the attitudes. I do understand that some of it's to protect people from dodgy treatments that don't work and they take the money off you. But I was simply exercising and, and wanting to do rehab to keep myself good as possible so is this sort of enthusiasms that i lost something i want to make a good outcome from something else that shaped your life or as a paraplegic yeah i think it's a combination of things to be honest i mean in the early days after such a catastrophic injury i was desperate to recover you know i'm, I'm not going to lie i couldn't see that you could have a good future being in a wheelchair so I hoped that if I worked hard, little things would come back. It's very different to what I think now, but at the time, you know, anything would have would have been great. I didn't get anything, by the way. Yeah, and then it was like, what was I going to do with my life? If I got up and did a rehab session, I felt better because I'd actually got up, moved, and that always makes you feel more positive than just lying in bed thinking I've got nothing. So I think mentally it was good for me as well as physically. Good, because we know from a lot of people, they just sit and wait for Godot and they don't know whether Godot will arrive. Exactly. It's, um, you know, and it is, it is the unknown. And people sometimes say to me, do I have any regrets? And I did put a lot of effort into my rehab. I went over to America for a week to a place called Project Walk. And all it was was intensive rehab. So three hours a day in the gym. And... They said to me when I got there, the people that do best are the ones that get on with their life as well. So I was never going to just do that. I I really tackled my injury from two different ways, rebuilding my life and it felt like everything had been taken off me and the rehab. So they were the two kind of sides I tackled it. Um, my relationship fell apart and it, you know everything went wrong in that first year. But I had a clear vision of what I wanted. I wanted to be a mum at some point I needed to find a husband I wanted to be a mum and I wanted to work again so there's lots of different different kind of aspects of my life and I needed to find support to do but I also wanted to do the rehab to see whether I could you know make any difference to the injury I had and did it no <laughs> but <laughs> I say no it didn't in terms of movement or sensation so I you know 16 years on I'm still paralyzed in the chest down but I would say it kept me physically good and that helps you mentally as well. So things like I use an electrical stimulation by, I've not, I don't want to say it because I'll probably get a problem once I've said it, but you know, 16 years on, I've not had a pressure sore. And they told me in hospital, I'll have to have shoes a size bigger for the rest of my life because my legs will be swollen. All those things, I keep moving and I still do that now. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of things that they will tell you about if you look into where did they come from, you find no scientific basis to it whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I am interested to say and remind you that although 16 years later you're still paralyzed from the chest down, 
you you went and completed a London marathon in 2012 in 17 days, the Vitality 10K in 12 hours, the Great North Run in 2016 in five days, the South Run in 24 hours, Manchester Marathon nine days using an exoskeleton. I don't know how you dare to do that, but you have raised more than 850,000 and in the process you got an MBE in recognition for all the work. It showed that you don't need to have restored the function from your chest down to be a great achiever. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I learned that as, as the years went by after my injury, it takes time to adapt. It's not an overnight thing. And what I've done in that exoskeleton suit, you know, what dreams are made of it it wasn't about the walking for me by the way I don't actually like walking <laughs> everyone everyone watching it thinks that you're really pleased because you're walking but actually if walking was that difficult we'd all sit in wheelchairs I'll tell you much more about it but I, I want to hear your story I rolled all these figures which make me short of breath just reading them <laughs> can you take the listeners through these things how did you come in 2012 to decide that you want to do the London Marathon? So really it started because I'd already had a mission to do what I could do to help a reverse paralysis. That started really because when I was lying in hospital, even though I had some really dark times, scary times, I also felt genuinely lucky because I got used to my arms and a lot of people in there with neck injuries, far worse injuries than me. I thought I've got to do what I can do to help cure paralysis. So that's how it all started. And when I saw the rewalk suit just on the internet, I thought God, it'd be a brilliant bit of kit to do a fundraising event, bigger than what I've done previously, and also get weight onto my feet in a better posture than just my standing frame and be able to take steps. So that's kind of how the idea came up, but it was made in Israel, it wasn't in the UK. So I fundraised to get the money for the suit with the help of the equestrian world. And I kept emailing the company and eventually um, they managed to get the suit in the UK for me to be trained to use it. And I hope they gave you a discount. <laughs> they did absolutely. Well, after I paid for half of it before with this money and then after the London Marathon and the amount of media it got, um, I didn't have to pay anymore. And it was a good thing because to me, it's not a useful everyday bit of kit. It's been amazing for what I've done as a fundraising tool, but not something I'd use on a day-to-day -day basis. And then you got hooked on running whatever events there is something to do. Yeah, exactly. A challenge. And it, you know, it's an amazing fundraiser. It's very, very emotive when you see like a paralyzed person walking and how difficult it was and and it, it made people donate and that's why I was doing it making my way to the finish line it, it was it's been fantastic for what I've used it for have you identified from all this experience what are the challenges which faces somebody like you a paraplegic sitting in a wheelchair there are all sorts of challenges every day and it's the stuff that you can't see. So obviously bowel and bladder issues, I think it's probably what bothers people most. And it was really hard in the early days. You know, my bladder would often let me down. It can make you feel reluctant to go out. And can you get, is an accessible loo? If you do get all these things, it is so much more than people see. And that's just that you can't walk. You know, as, as time went on, I came to terms with it and I just shove my tenor pants on and get on with it because, you know, I don't want it to hold me back. And and it doesn't now. It just doesn't 
it's just my it's become my normal the other thing is what I think is amazing is that we're in a world where I can get in a microlight with adaptions and fly a plane I just got my pilot's license I can get on a motorbike and ride on a track day with mainly men able-bodied with adaptions I can walk a marathon with an adaption but you struggle to get on a train and you struggle to get in a building the things that most people want to do are still a battle for everyone and and I don't think that should be the case you know in 16 years of being paralyzed I don't think much has changed or advanced in in the way you travel around and get around yet in sport it's, it's moved on so so far well that's why then I look forward to people like you fronting these sort of things you know there's no point of me going and telling people you know paralyzed can't get easily on a train it needs people like Claire Lomas to go and tell people I can fly a glider but I cannot get on the train yeah exactly it's it's crazy um I know that East Anglia trains have got some new trains and they've got ramps that come out on the onto the platform. I haven't seen them yet, but that's what we need on all trains because you know, we want people that are disabled to be able to get to work, do jobs and live you know, a life that they want to live. It is pretty tricky. I, I live in the countryside, but if you lived in the city and you had to face that every day, I can't imagine how restricted you'd feel. Most of the time in my life, I can honestly say I don't feel disabled because I found all the things that I can do and it doesn't hold me back. But there's times where it's out of your hands, the ramp doesn't come when you get to the platform and you feel really disabled and you're just relying on someone else to get the ramp and they don't always come. And, and it's, not, it's not in your control. Yes, all what they need to do is be inventive and have a ramp which automatically folds onto the platform you know, built onto the train. Exactly. You press not, a button, it comes yeah. out. <laughs> it's not difficult. It's not difficult. If you can invent a robotic suit that, you know, makes a paralyzed person be able to take steps, then um, surely, you know, we can advance in other areas. So I could understand all these activities were still on, on land or in water. Where did you get the idea that you wanted to fly? <laughs> that's a funny one actually so I've got two children Maisie and Chloe um, Maisie's 12 just started secondary school a year ago so she's growing up quickly and she she was actually the biggest change in my life so we can think about the London Marathon and that was a very special moment and, and quite life-changing for me it changed my career became a speaker and, and lots of different areas and the opportunities that came from it but the biggest change in my life was having Maisie so that was in 2011, four years after my accident. I met Dan, my husband, a year after my accident on a dating website, paid 20 quid for Dan. So I got him, <laughs> my husband, and then had Maisie, yeah, a few years later. And I've also got Chloe, who's six. And the doctor that delivered Chloe was also a motivational speaker. And he'd done challenges. He'd done the South Pole Challenge with Ben Fogel and James Cracknell. It was on BBC. So how lucky was I to get him as a doctor? I couldn't believe it. Uh, anyway, I got to know Ed quite well and we became friends and, and I was speaking at an event for him, uh, for the NHS. And we met up in a pub the night before, had a meal and he just started having lessons, learning to fly. So he said, look, you've got to start this. You can get adaptions and, and one day we'll do a challenge together. So that's how it came about. So it's quite a funny one. And um, yes, yeah, so that was just before the pandemic and 
so it's been a bit on and off my training with big breaks but yeah managed to get my license and I fly a ultralight so one seater and a two seater I've taken both my daughters up which is just the most incredible feel because when I when I was pregnant I thought will my child miss out because of my disability and would it affect them and I can honestly say it hasn't it's actually brought opportunities that I wouldn't have had if it wasn't for my accident and we wouldn't have had as a family. So when you, Barbara, asked you to fly her, you reassured her that if I can fly my children, then you can, I can fly you. <laughs> exactly. So I've been doing charity flights and um, one of them was a lovely, lovely 80-year-old lady who I, it was at an event I was speaking at and we auctioned a, a prize and for a children's hospice. And yeah, I flew her a little while ago and it was really special to to use what I've done that's always the idea to to use what I can do to help raise money and for lots of different charities so it does it opens doors to other things so what are the charities you are involved with these days so mainly the Nicholls Spinal Injury Foundation I'm a patron of the charity I I actually did the London Marathon for Spinal Research and then I met David Nicholls a year after well a few months after the London Marathon and he said, told me about the, what the research they were doing. And that sounded in, incredible. But also, I love the fact that he's got the same passion as me for finding a cure for paralysis. His son was paralysed in his gap year, dived into a sandbank and broke his neck on Bondi Beach. But I know that David doesn't waste a penny. And often when you look into charities, you know, I, I've had people off the streets around London walking up to me that probably haven't got loads of money to shove into your tin and they still do. And I don't want any of that money wasted. So I'm quite fussy where it goes. So I feel very confident with the work they're doing and, and the way they spend the money. So we ride, we swim, we do marathon, we ski, we fly. What's next? <laughs> um, get better at some of the things I do. So like I say, like, like what? <laughs> <laughs> like flying. So, you know, I've only just recently got my navigation done. So now I've got to get used to flying to different airfields, get more confidence. That's the plan, actually. I'm hoping to fly tonight. I've just got the single seater, the ultralight back home so I can fly because we've got a farm farm grass strip so I can just go out and fly from there and it's that feels amazing because it's always been with a lot of traveling to the airfield so I want to do that I do team challenges so sometimes when I've gone into corporate events to speak I managed to drum up a team to go and do like we did the Newcastle 10k in July with a law firm that I spoke for I had 25 of us doing that I push it in my everyday wheelchair by the way I'm not walking in the suit it's in my wheelchair now so yeah doing a lot of that I did a challenge earlier this year in May where I went over to Northern Ireland and for the first time I managed to ride my motorbike on the road and it was a big road race so they they let me have a charity lap round it um, and that was really special uh, never thought I'd do stuff like that so yeah lot, lots of different kind of things I could do so we'll see what what the future brings you don't feel old anymore sometimes when I've got two children bickering all summer holidays <laughs> um, but yeah now I feel that the list of what I can do outweighs what I can't do by a long way and and I, I think I've had two opportunities at life I think that often when we get older we stop learning new things you're kind of in your area that you know. So for me, that was the horses and, and would have maybe been my chiropractic for, forever. Who knows? But um, I've had to reinvent myself. I've had to be willing to try things that I'd never considered. And that keeps you younger because, you know, we, we our kids start doing all these clubs and 
different things and trying this, that and the other. But I've had to be a bit more open and look a little bit harder than I would have done, I think, if I if I was still able-bodied. And the first love of your life, which is horse riding, do you pay any attention to it about the horse riding for the disabled and this and that and that? Yeah, so it was really hard to fill that gap because it was my passion, it was my life, and it was heartbreaking. I mean, if you lost any sport that you was, you were doing to the level I, w- I was competing at, it, it'd be hard, but horses are a whole other thing. You could shove a tennis racket in the cupboard. I had to sell my horses. They'd go to other riders, the ones that had owners, and it it really was the most heartbreaking time of my life. But I have gone to the events and watched. I love watching the big competitions, mainly on TV these days, because I'm, I'm busy doing other stuff. Well, the, and also you can see better. Exactly. <laughs> very true. And get around better. I did ride again. Only 12 weeks after my accident, I was back on a horse. And everyone said to me, it must be amazing to be back on. But to be honest, it wasn't. Because I still felt like the same person. The thing is, with a spinal cord injury is it affected my body. Two thirds of my body didn't work, but in my head, I still wanted to jump the big fences and do the fast stuff, not ride a quiet horse around. The, you know, it just didn't give me a buzz, basically. So that's why I tried new things. Yeah, I'm sure people will understand. So in a nutshell, Claire Lomas, with all your achievements, what advice do you give to your fellow persons who find themselves in the same situation? Um, there's a couple of things I'd say that I think would probably, hopefully, help someone in the early days. And firstly, it's normal to be sad. It's normal to grieve and have tough times. It doesn't mean you're going to stay there. And you've got to take those little opportunities in the early days. For me, it was being offered a job local to where I live in an office. And part of me felt angry when I was offered that job because I could have done it when I was 16. I'd had four years at university. And in so many ways, I felt like I was going backwards. But I took the opportunity and I didn't realise at the time how significant it was. And even on the days I didn't feel like it, I'd make myself go into the office and nearly always felt better for it. So that was the kind of first few stepping stones. And the other thing I'd say is accept help. Even now, I'm never afraid to have help. Now, whether that's leaning on someone in the early days, sharing how you feel, or whether it's help with something physically, lifting your wheelchair in the car. I don't, I, I can take my wheelchair to bits and put it next to me and be totally independent. But why, why bother doing that if you've got someone to help you? Put it in the back. Save your energy for other things so you can feel more into your life and fit more in. And I think, you know, that's a really important thing. People love to help anyway. You know, some people might think I'm really independent because I do all these different things and I'm up solo in my micro light. But actually, I have a lot of help and life's full of teamwork. And, you know, I like to think I help my kids and husbands with other things and they help me where I need it. And, and you know, that can get you through life, I think. The other thing is, like I said, is by taking those little things, don't discount them because... You won't get the bigger picture without doing the first few things. It's easy to concentrate on things like the London Marathon, the flying, all these things. But actually just getting out of bed when I had no reason to get up was the toughest thing I've ever done. No one was there clapping me or saying, well done for just dragging my paralysed body out of bed. But without doing that, I wouldn't be where I am now. It's a bit like a jigsaw to get the full picture, the bigger picture, which I called my second book, by the way. To get that picture, you've got to put all the pieces in. And those first few pieces are the hardest, but you're not going to get to where you want to without putting them in. And 
I'd just like to thank everyone really for the care I did get. It was only the rehab side that wasn't enough for me, the actual care I got. And, you know, I wouldn't be sharing this story with you now. It'd be a very different story without all you lot doing your amazing work. So a huge thank you for me and, and everyone in my situation. Claire, I hope you first send me your first book and then remember me when you publish your second book. <laughs> it was a great pleasure to meet up with you. The fact that you have concentrated from day one on rebuilding your life through rehab, wanting to be a mom, wanting to go back to work, which is what we all as clinicians wish that all fellow patients like you will adopt from day one. I hope we, you have enjoyed listening to this episode of Spine Cord Injury Care, What Really Matters. For our listeners, remember you can listen to this episode and all our episodes in our full back catalogue. We invite you to like and subscribe and if you can leave a review. If you have any questions or suggestions, we would love to hear from you. Email them to admin at iscos.org.uk. ISCOS also invites you to the 62nd ISCOS Scientific Annual Meeting taking place in Edinburgh this October. All details are in the show notes. Thank you for listening.